And now, New Galaxy Enterprises proudly presents Threshold Radio. This is Johnny Blue Star. Welcome to Threshold, a global media event. Is the universe just a random dance of atoms, or is it a manifestation of a supremely intelligent architect? Can its purpose, or our purpose here on Earth, be adequately assessed? Can we commune with it, know its intentions, cooperate with its direction? Here, we define threshold as a gateway state of awareness, allowing mankind to cross into a place of real cognition. Threshold allows us to approach questions of higher reality through the door of experience rather than mere belief. Welcome to Threshold, where we tear away the veil from commercial media, bringing our audience and participants into another realm of reality and enhanced communication. We're back on Threshold Radio with Lenora Engelhart, a clinical social worker who specializes in an intuitive approach to recovery from addiction, which is fueled by certain principles and understandings about addiction, which we will discuss here. Lenore has been a colleague and friend for many years, and I know the way she combines compassion, understanding, and spirituality in her approaches to her own life and to those of her clients. Welcome to Threshold Radio, Lenore. Hello, Johnny. I'm really, I'm really glad to be talking to you again. You know, I, I think before we get into the program, where mm-hmm. we'll, we will kind of focus on addiction, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, clinical social work and the type of work that you've been doing in general over the years. Well, I think it goes back a long way. Uh, I wanted to get involved in becoming uh, an MSW, which is what, that's a master's in social work since I was about uh, 21 years old. I found that this was a way for me to be able, by getting a master's degree, to help people, different people on different levels with their emotional problems. When I was very young, I uh, found a position in Boston, this is a very interesting story, Uh with a group, and I became a play therapist. Uh, The person who was my supervisor was 89 years old, and she actually knew Freud, and this was a very fascinating opportunity. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what, what is play therapy, though? Play therapy is what you do with children who are emotionally disturbed. You take them into your office and you actually play with toys and you talk to them. Because you can't talk to them like a an adult client uh, since, you know, they're so young. And we would go in and we would color or we would even bake a cake or we would play with toys. And then they would tell you what is going on in their life. And so I was supervised by this woman who at the time was 89 years old. And that was kind of the beginning of my career. Uh, After that, uh, I moved to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, where I met you. Yes, I remember. uh, (laughs) Yes. And I was uh, involved with the county superintendent of schools office where I directed a a drug and alcohol prevention program, and also an alternative school for um, teenagers who were having problems. And this was a whole county organization. We we went into training with the Office of Education, who took us to various places for two weeks at a time around the country. And so this was great training. Uh, After that, I applied to Tulane University, where I went and got my MSW, and that's in New Orleans. So through all of this training, I decided uh, that this was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, and I have been in private practice now. Worked in New Mexico, and now I'm in Atlanta, and I'm still in private practice. I've been doing this for over 25 years. Well, that's amazing. I, I will say that going back into part of your past, I was part of one of those journeys that you went with Tom Summers to uh, to be in a, a drug uh, workshop. Yes. That was quite an experience for me. Of course, that's not been the focus of my career, but I was really glad to have learned what I learned there. Yes. And where were you? Where were we when you did that? We went to Vail. Okay. All right. Okay. A long yes, time ago. Was, yes, it was quite an amazing experience, wasn't it? 
Oh, yeah, it really was. Yeah. And uh, after that period, I did confront and meet, for various reasons, different people, some of, which I, some of whom I was close to, who, who were addicts in one mm -hmm. way or another. And I came yeah. out of an experience where one of my friends uh, in high school, one of my best friends, actually became a drug addict on heroin. And several, wow. and several people I knew had extremely traumatic and dangerous experiences because of drugs before I even met you. So it's always been on my mind. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go into the nitty-gritty of it. Okay. Let's talk about addiction in general. Could you describe this to us? Uh, yes. I think that uh, the reason it's called addiction is because it's a craving that one has no control over. Whether it's alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, it can be pornography, sex, love. Uh, it's, it's something that, you know, you want to say to the person, well, why don't you just quit this? Well, they can't. And often the problem with it is if, if one doesn't get into recovery or get some help, it usually leads, as they say in AA, to insanity or death or both. Yes, I had a partner once, one of the most intelligent people that I know. Uh -huh. uh, and he was in, it was sort of an advertising business. And he um, had been an addict and he recovered. He used to go to regular meetings. But somehow something went wrong at some point and he died of a heroin overdose. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, before, you know, when I had known him less than a year before that, he yes. seemed to be fine. But uh, he, I don't think he kept up the, the need to, um, to have help on a regular basis. Well, that's a very sad story. And I think that considering what goes on with addiction, some of the things that most people know about, they understand that certain celebrities and musicians oftentimes die of an overdose. And uh, I think it's because they cannot deal with the fame that has hit them suddenly. I'll give examples where now back in uh, older days of Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, all of these people were extremely talented, but they were addicted to various substances yeah, and could, you know, couldn't so, stop. Yeah, it seems like sometimes the material answer to, to, to happiness, uh, even for the ordinary person, is just not satisfying because the happiness that you really get comes from a, a very deep sense within yourself, I think. And uh, these, yes. these things kind of substitute for that inner experience, and they, they blot it out, like clouds covering the sun. And the, and the person has to have these things in order to feel that they're alive. Yes, I think what you're talking about, I would put it a bit differently. There okay. is a very deep emptiness in the individual that they are trying to fill. The problem with it is, uh, especially with drugs and alcohol, uh, that emptiness, uh, you know, you take the drug, you feel like you're in a, a kind of a state of ecstasy, uh, and then it's gone. And the only way you can get that back is to keep doing it. And that's why it becomes this kind of vicious cycle. Well, given the, you see, in my case, I actually know a lot of people who didn't really recover, or if they recovered, it was tremendously mm -hmm. hard. And in yes. general, because I have seen some disastrous things happen to different people, not just the people I mentioned, is recovery easy or possible? Or what, 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 is, what would denote the possibility for a, an addict to recover? Well, the first step is motivation. Without motivation, nothing's going to happen. Another person can't make another person get into recovery, which often happens, say, with, in a marital situation where the spouse is alcoholic, the other one wants that person to recover. But the person has got to want to recover. Often it involves hitting bottom, which means you've lost everything. You could lose your job, your partner, uh, your money, everything. And then finally, it hits you between the eyes that you better do something because the next, th next thing that's going to happen is you're going to die. Yeah. Literally yeah. die. And I have met people like that at yeah. those last stages. And some of them, particularly one I'm thinking of, did not necessarily recover at all. You know? mm -hmm. 
and some of them, as I said, have died. So it's it's not it's not a joke, especially yeah. if you care about a person like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so they so the first step is is motivation, and which may come under traumatic circumstances. Uh, yes, you know what? Let me say something else besides motivation. There is something before that, which is recognition, because uh, addiction is all about denial. Uh, we're going to pretend that there is no problem, that we're not going to notice the elephant in the room. And this is what often happens in alcoholic families. Uh, the addict uh, is there uh, getting, we'll just say, drunk all the time. And uh, the wife is picking up the pieces, or maybe if there is no wife at that point, the uh, older child becomes the parental child, takes care of the younger ones, and that's what happens in families. Do you think that the conditions in our society, various elements of those conditions, encourage or push addiction? Absolutely. Tell us about it. Okay, I, I think that, well, you know, if you, if you even just watch TV, you look at these beautiful models, uh, whether they're male or female, uh, or even looking at a magazine, looking anywhere at a billboard, you know, it's almost like the, uh, the only people that exist are, are 30 years old or younger. And uh, it's kind of um, a cult, a, a cult of beauty. Well, most people cannot aspire to that and so they feel bad about themselves i think low self-esteem is a big piece of this and they're trying to comfort themselves in some way uh, because either you know uh, they don't think they're good enough they didn't get the job they don't have a decent relationship and so the only thing that looks uh, promising is is a drug or alcohol you know, I that's one problem with media, but I, I think I detect another one, Lenore. I don't know if you'll agree with me or not. What's but I, I, I watch a lot of series, you know, these new series that are Netflix or Hulu. and Yeah. Mainly because I write in this genre. I, I, you know, movies are, are TV, some TV pilots. So I'm very interested in this genre. But yeah. I notice something about them. Number one... A lot of the ones that are really popular, and I, I have to tell you, I self-censor when I watch these things. Yes, so, so do I. <laughs> so, so, first of all, they have a lot of um, sexuality, very graphic, yes. and sometimes, yes. uh, you know, rather perverted. I mean, you know, like, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, in uh, Billions, that uh, was a popular one recently, they'll, they'll mm-hmm. have a lot of S&M. Or they'll have they'll have all kinds of sexuality and very yes. explicit and uh, and then of course very loveless in a lot of ways or very you know the the, per, the people who are interacting are not interacting in a in a very loving way. Uh, another mm-hmm. thing that they do is they they push violence to a point where people who would normally have at least some kind of conscience about violence, in other words create a protagonist who is very good in many ways and then have them kill somebody accidentally or do something extremely sadistic, including Mm -hmm. the kind of superhero shows that are on that are, that that are sometimes amazing because I don't, I, I think that they, that kids really are not watching them at all because they are so filled with violence and sexuality. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that that creates an environment where, where yes. your happiness is supplied, you're, you're looking for a kind of happiness and entertainment, and you're really being kind of programmed into despair. Uh, yeah, that's true. Well, listen, Lenore, we're going to take a break for a second, and we will be right back. Okay. Thank you. Often recovery from addiction, acute depression, or anger involves a level of seemingly spiritual intervention. You can find this modality in Stephanie's song, Close to Death. Someone kiss me 
stand up at all But you must not work against me For then you will just fall Then you will just fall We've been talking about addiction and about social conditions, the social elements that push addiction. But say, let's look at it from another point. How does a person become empowered and be able to leave the syndrome of addiction? Well, I think that's a really good question, and it kind kinds of kind of brings us back to what we were saying earlier about I think they have to get sick and tired of it. Yeah, and it's. You know, when you are, when a person is in so much denial about how it's affecting them, how it's affecting the family, it can be really, really bad. And the problem is the whole, I keep talking about families because the whole family uh, is um, wrapped up in this. There is a Netflix series called Shameless. William Macy is the star of it, and he is the alcoholic. It takes place in Chicago. Uh, there's a lot of sexuality in that as well. But the older daughter, mother has disappeared, is the, I'm going to use the word now, codependent in the family and the parental child. She uh, takes care of everybody, thus enabling uh, the father, who is Macy, to drink. And, uh, you know, it's not like she's encouraging him to drink, but he drinks. They show him sleeping on the floor. Uh, he is a total, um, if I can say, a loser as far as um, helping the family. He takes his Social Security tr check, he's on disability, and goes and spends it. And the kids are sort of um, on their own. But it's a very good series in terms of what an alcoholic family looks like. I have to say that he is a very good actor. Yes, yes. I haven't yes. seen that. I didn't know he was in it, so I'll be, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, be Check. looking at it with my eyes yes. half closed once in a while. Check so. it out, and he also, I understand, lives in Atlanta. So, yeah. Oh, we'll say hello. <laughs> but you know, in the alcoholic family, we have a series of people. I'll give. Would you like me to talk about that? I, yes, and particularly uh, to to go a little bit more into what codependency is. Yes. Well, codependency has to do, let's just use it in terms of a spouse who allows the alcoholic to continue his or her problem, the drinking. They will go to work, keep the house clean, pay all the bills, uh, hope everything looks good, not tell the neighbors. And that <clears throat> is a classic example of someone who we would use the phrase enabling the spouse to drink. Yeah. So that's the definition of, of codependency. Well, I, I think there are 
are reasons for it, right? Could you? Go, why would a person do that? I mean, do they do it out of ignorance or do they do it because they don't feel they can do anything else because they have a person who's kind of helpless or... Right. Uh, well, I think that there is a number of, re- of reasons. Uh, often, oftentimes, there, you know, codependency can be considered like a, um, a co-addiction. Uh, the person is addicted to the, the addict acting out. And that's the reason that they do this kind of thing. I know it doesn't make any sense, but they oftentimes are afraid of being by themselves, even though they're involved with a a very sick individual, and they just keep this going. I mean, I've known people, for example, in Al-Anon, which is the sister organization of AA, uh, a number of the spouses, oftentimes women, have been with that person for 40 years. Whoa. And they don't leave. Sometimes it might be a situation where the, the addict is working, let's say it's the husband, but he's functional. He goes to work, but he drinks. And so she doesn't leave because of children and finances. That's, that's kind of more, you know, a number of years ago that that was going on. Things have changed now. Well, another point that I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, we've been talking about some of these social factors, but what, how about personal problems that uh, result in depression and, uh, you know, chronic anxiety? Do they, these things lead to addiction? That's a very good point. Or we might say that the addiction leads to the depression and chronic anxiety. Right. It kind of both, I think it goes I think it goes both ways uh, because, you know, alcohol, okay, is we can look at it as a chemical imbalance because uh, sometimes uh, there's a phrase called self-medicating. A person is depressed and so they drink to feel better. However, unfortunately, uh, alcohol is a depressant and so the person becomes more depressed. The same thing with drugs. People are using it to feel better, but... In, in the long run, it makes the situation worse. Well, speaking of uh, addiction in the family that we were mentioning, you know, like a codependent situation, what happens to emotionally to children who are raised in a family where addiction is prevalent? Well, there are different uh, personalities in a family, uh, and it's interesting how it works. Uh, I'll just name some of them. One of the children may become the overachiever or the family hero. Uh, I was raised in an alcoholic family. My father functioned and he worked, but he did drink. And so I see myself, I kind of became the family hero because uh, we could um, look at the fact that I got into the field of helping and uh, because I came out of an alcoholic family. Now, there's also other children in the family may become, uh, one might be the family mascot. He's always making jokes and being silly at school and often doesn't do his work. Another uh, part of the family, another family member, may become the rebel and just follow in in, uh, the addict's footsteps. And so, you know, it's a a real kind of a mix uh, that goes on there. Okay, so somebody comes to you out of maybe they're codependent and they're coming to you to a family that's in this type of shape because one or both of the uh, adults are addicted or maybe a child is addicted. How do you handle that? Well, one of the things uh, that I do, because I'm I'm thinking of particular clients that I have now, and, you know, by the way, it doesn't matter if they're 25 or 65. Sometimes the older ones still have the memory of the um, alcoholic father, and their whole uh, approach to life has been to try to rescue that individual. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. The alcoholic father could be dead, but that person, I'm just going to use an example of, um, let's take a woman, and this is not a real person, I'm making up a scenario, Uh, but that person has married or been with a number of partners throughout her life, usually picking someone who is... um, an addict or disturbed or abusive in some way. Often addicts are abusive, either verbally or physically, and continues to go from one relationship to the next. And so they are stuck um, in a situation not only of rescuing, but of being addicted, looking for love, as they say, in all the wrong places. Right. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. Well, but what actually do you do with the person? I mean, 
what oh, is okay. the ther- how does the therapy work, uh, especially in relationship to a family situation? What do you advise them? How do you handle well, it? What I do is, first of all, we have to explore the whole situation. If there is an actual addict in the situation who is abusing the codependent, you have to build the codependent self-esteem so that person can actually leave the situation or give the addict an ultimatum, I'm going to leave you if you don't change, which often gets that person into some kind of rehab program and on the road to recovery. That's so, like a tough love yeah. situation, right? Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. But the um, codependent can be in as much denial as the addict, and that's why they're kind of doing this, this dance together. So I want to help both people get their lives together. Of course, let's say the codependent is my client. I don't really have influence over the uh, addict, but um, through the codependent, as I said, uh, she can get her life together and recognize the pattern that she's in. How do you directly or indirectly deal with the children in that family, say, if a husband or wife comes to you with as a codependent or as an addict? How do you influence the restoration of a nor- or normalization of the family? Well, I would have to tell the codependent that unless, you know, she either leaves the family and gets healthy herself, not not the family leaves leaves the spouse and gets healthy herself, the children are not going to get healthy. So, um, you know, that has to happen. Or, you know, we could also do family counseling, which I do, and get everyone in there to confront and make an intercession with the addict himself. So what's your experience with the success of that? Well, I guess I'd say my experience depends on uh, the person being willing to change. And usually when someone arrives at my office, they are willing to make the change. But it's it's a really tough situation. So you have actually seen people, I guess, recover fairly completely, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yes. Yes. Well, that must be very satisfying. Uh, Yes. Oftentimes when I have people coming to me, let's say um, addicts, we'll call them, who are in recovery already, then they have made the decision to recover. Of course, sometimes, uh, and I've had this happen too, sometimes people will step back into the addiction for a time, but usually they will come back out of it. So if that happens... Uh, you have to just give them the space to figure it out and come back. Right, because they have bottomed out, and then they've come back, and they re-experience some of the things that they know are going to lead to something else, and they finally make a more permanent move, right? Yes, yes. Now, I do want to say this. Uh, Sometimes one of the problems, let's say in the alcoholic family, is that not only do we have the, the drugs and or alcohol going on, but we have um, love addiction. Uh, the codependent is addicted to the addict because they feel so bad about themselves. They want to be loved by someone, so they'll just take you know crumbs uh, from the addict and try to make everything look good because they're uh, so fearful of leaving and and finding themselves empty emotionally. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, Lenore, we're going to take another break now okay. and come back and. We're going to talk about one of the more tremendous forms of addiction that we have in our society, namely food. Oh, okay. We'll be right back. Here's a clip of a song written by myself and Russian composer Edgar Ahrens for an album developed with singer Patricia Welch called Desperate Games. Your shadow marks the brazen breeze I send. Slowly freeze, tempted by your lips and your touch. The cup of you is way too much. I drink from you.
Well, we're back again on Threshold Radio with Lenora Engelhart, a clinical social worker, and we're discussing recovery, and of course, we're also discussing addiction. It's a very, very interesting subject, and um, one of the things, though, about addiction, Lenore, is that a lot of people are addicted to something in this culture, and yes. it's related to food. Yes, and, and I would say that among those people, there's a large percentage who have no idea that they're addicted because they live on addictive substances that are very, very bad for them. Yes, I agree. Uh, one of them that's obvious to me is sugar. Yes. The sugar blues. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us about it. Well, I think that uh, we can call it sugar and or, or both carbohydrates. Right. And most people are just completely unconscious of what they are buying and what they are eating. So this is what is the major cause of obesity in our society. Um, I want to also connect this with depression. Uh, when uh, people come in, especially women, I like to ask them, hey, what did you eat in the last few days? And uh, they'll talk about all the carbs that they had. I'm not hearing a lot about fish or meat or vegetables or anything like this. I want and, to make a point. Uh, yes, I like yes. to make a point here because people talk about carbs and, you know, yeah. there's there's two kinds of carbs. There's, uh, yes. you know, simple carbohydrates, like, like particularly with flour or sugar. And then there's yes. complex carbohydrates like carrots and broccoli. And yes. we're not, when we say carbs in the way, this context, we're really talking about things that are high, usually highly glycemic and, uh, highly glycemic cause a spike in insulin in the, in, in the, in the, in the, in the blood. And when that happens, there's all kinds of reactions to it. And, yeah. uh, but, but it, these things are, are, generally speaking, these high glycemic carbs are very addictive. Yes, they are. They're very addictive. Uh, there is one way to get around the addiction, however. Um, and I don't want to get into a whole different food plans, but uh, the paleo uh, slash primal diet uh, involves uh, avoiding sugar, and avoiding the, uh, you know, carbohydrates like flour, anything, let's just call it anything white, okay? That makes it easier. Uh, white flour, white potatoes, white rice, white bread, even though they also avoid some of the whole grain breads, but anything white, including white sugar, people want to avoid. Just doing that would make a big difference in people's mood. Now, actually, being very experienced about this, that ain't yes. so easy. No, it's not. I mean, I it's would say not. that I would say that uh, for me, I know many people who struggle every day because they and they go through these diets and you know, yes. you say, well, they're going through these diets to lose weight. Well, they're not only going to trying to lose weight, they're trying to regain their health. Yes. I mean, yes. I had an experience where I was truly dying of asthma and mm. uh I I actually at the time in another context, worked for one of the leading authors on holistic medicine, although I didn't pay any attention to <laughs> what he was teaching, wound okay. up in New Orleans uh, thinking that the that the uh, the weather would cure my asthma. Huh. And I went into air panic as soon as I got off the plane and wound up uh, meeting somebody in a health food store that uh, that said to me that, you know, asthma, that's nothing. I cured somebody of leukemia last year, something like that. And, oh, wow. And, okay. and showed me some kind of newspaper article. And she gave <laughs> me, I didn't believe her at all, but I was so sick. I came back and I asked her, what are you talking about? And she put me on a mucus, mucusless diet, uh, mm -hmm. which is a, a teaching of Arnold Errett, a really old, uh, probably somewhat non-scientific approach uh -huh. to these problems. And my asthma went away. The chronic symptoms went away in three days. <laughs> And I, I could breathe again. I, I couldn't take a quarter of a teaspoon of sugar, though, which was against the rules, for a yeah. year without tremendous problems. Uh, the whole thing coming back again. But mm -hmm. I did. I now have been cured for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, something like that. And so it, it actually meant something. Mm -hmm. And I was definitely addicted to sugar. But yes. I, I kind of bottomed out because I, I, I saw that I was dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's, that's quite a story, and that's amazing. But let me also add that this is what people don't know uh, when they go on a quote-unquote diet. Uh, that's why I'm interested in this uh, kind of, uh, well, there's a diet out there called a ketogenic, and there's also one called um, paleo, as I mentioned earlier. But the key to these diets 
is to eat enough fat, which people are terrified of if they're on a diet. But the truth is fat does not make you fat. So if you eat coconut oil, olive oil, uh, any of uh, fish oil, any of the good oils, uh, you can eat as much as you want of it. And it will satisfy you so that you will not have the sugar craving. And I think that's a very important piece that usually nobody seems to recognize. How does paleo deal with that? With the fat? Yeah. Uh, well, they suggest, you know, not only eating the protein as far as fish and meat and lots of vegetables, talking about the broccoli, carrot kind of vegetables, uh, and adding the coconut oil. And, you know, there are things that one can have. For example, you can have a chocolate that's 70% chocolate and it's not going to trigger the sugar. So somewhat you can you can get real creative with some of these things. Well, so I, they add the fat. They add the fat is my point. I see. Well, you know, uh, I noticed. You know, we were talking before about the highs that you get on 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 these various obvious substances like alcohol and, and drugs. Yes. But people don't realize, and except people are awakened to this already, how mm -hmm. incredibly powerful effect sugar for one thing, has yeah. on your uh, on your moods, on, on your uh, on, on your feeling of, of well-being. I mean, yeah. so do other things like coffee, caffeine. I mean, uh -huh. Uh -huh. You, you, these things are really powerful drugs, aren't they? Yes, they are. And like everything else, whatever, whenever you go up unnaturally, in a sense, you come down quite hard. And so there's a connection between sugar, carbs, and depression, right? Yes. And I also think uh, that uh, as one gets older, uh, if you want to remain healthy, uh, you need to get off of these substances. Yeah, I, I still, I, I mean, I'm on a pretty strict diet. I try to be on a very strict diet. Mm -hmm. But when I go out, I mean, I, the other day I went out to a, a fairly famous restaurant, not a fast food restaurant, but a fine mm -hmm. a, a dining restaurant. And, yeah. I, and where they serve a lot of salad, but mm -hmm. they also serve breadsticks. They mm -hmm. also serve a lot of cheese and a lot of <laughs> other types of... So it's like yeah. it has a sort of appearance of health, but for me, it wasn't really very healthy. And, yeah. and so it's really hard to socialize when you're trying to deal with these problems. You have to be extremely careful, wouldn't you say? Yes, you do. Uh, one of the things, though, that people recommend, uh, you know, some of the quote-unquote experts in, in these fields, is that you take one day a week and go ahead and eat whatever you want on that day, but not do it on the other days. Now, if you're really sick, of course, you can't do that. But that way you feel like, okay, I've had a little bit of pasta or I've had a little bit of bread. And uh, there are many, many ways to get around these things. Uh, I'm also doing a diet similar to what you are and um, learning a lot about how to make desserts, uh, how to um, make breads. All of these things are gluten-free. You have to almost develop your own food culture. Yes. Because you can't, I mean, where I am, there's virtually no restaurant that serves, for instance, raw food. There's no raw food restaurant that's not even heard of here. And mm -hmm. so some of the restaurants or the buffets, they do, they do have some good things. But another thing that you have to watch out for, and I mean, this is maybe a little bit of digression, are GMOs. Because oh, you don't yeah. you don't know what's actually in these foods, and besides right. besides the sugar and the carbs and all that, there's also all kinds of chemicals, preservatives, pesticides, uh, traces of um, antibiotics, and so forth, hormones yes. in these foods. That's and, right. uh, and so it's almost the, when I was saying having your own food culture. I mean, you actually have to create a uh, as much organic you know, produce as you can, yes. you have to yes. wash everything. And then you, when it comes to meat, you, if you're going to be a meat eater, there's a lot of really bad stuff in meat. So you have to yes. find meat that's often quite expensive in order to, uh, or, or go to a farm directly. Yes, grass-fed, pasture-fed, butter. It, yeah, it really does. I mean, it takes a commitment. As we were talking about a person who's addicted to a drug or alcohol, this takes as much of a commitment to make a decision to uh, do it this way because you feel better. Yeah. So when we talk about eating disorders, which we haven't really mentioned in the terms of clinical, uh, you know, someone who is anorexic or bulimic, that, that means someone who uh, basically is starving themselves to death or throwing up after they binge, 
Yeah, that's kind of a little bit of a different a different story. But it really is, it's very complicated, and we won't get into that, I'm sure, today. But I'm just saying that there are all kinds of eating disorders out there. And most of the people we meet, um, you know, don't think of themselves as having an eating disorder. They're just eating what's out there in the, in the grocery store. Well, you know, Lenore, um, we probably have only touched on this, and I hope someday yes. you'll come back and we can talk a little bit more about recovery and the different kinds of addiction. But we have at least focused on one that I would wager that 80% of the people listening to this program probably have or are struggling yes. with, you know, the food addiction. But, Absolutely. But before we go, mm-hmm. I'd like you to give us some information about how people could contact you. Do you do this work uh, your clinical work like this over the phone ever at, at a distance? Yes, I do do Skype sessions. And that's, you know, uh, Skype sessions with a video. Uh-huh. And also, I guess people can contact me and uh, I can, you know, do you want me to give you a number? Oh, or definitely. What? Give us all the contact information. As I said, I'm in Atlanta and I work with all kinds of people who call me and, you know, in, in these various fields, this is the whole addictive kind of thing is my specialty. I, I do a lot of work with women who have been sexually abused, who are dealing with love addiction, who come out of these kinds of families, who have been traumatized. Why don't I just put it that way? I also work with um, gay and uh, lesbian uh, transgendered population and uh, have done so for years. So uh, right now, you can reach me by calling my number, which is 404-212-0792, or sending me an email, and my email is Lenore, L-E-N-O-R-E, Engelhart, E-N-G-E-L-H-A-R-D-T, at gmail.com. Could you repeat your phone number again? Yes, 404 404- Lenore, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, part of Threshold Radio is meant to try and empower our listeners. We handle all kinds of controversial and, you know, spiritually, politically, socially, personally types of things. But there is a belief that people need to be empowered in order to face the, the, the world that they live in today, and not yes. just empowered for themselves, but to, to empower to help others. And I think you've made a big contribution to our empowerment series. Well, thank you. That is really my goal in, in my therapy practice, is to empower others. Well, thank you for coming, and we hope to be in touch with you soon. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for having me, Johnny. Quite welcome. Take care. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. It is now time to hear from Dr. Hugo Rodier, MD, who regularly brings to us his insights and wisdom from the forward-looking integrative medical perspective. Hi, Johnny. Today I have a great article that came out in the New York Times, September 12th, in fact. It's a review of an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine, saying that for decades the sugar industry has been paying the media scientists, colleges, about keeping quiet on how toxic refined sugars are, particularly for the heart. Now, I've known this for quite a while, but I've never seen it so so widely open and so clearly told by the powers that be. And this is great for consumers. We have known that uh, sugar is extremely toxic, but uh, big sugar, as, as it's called, has been hiding the evidence that they have manipulated science and bought influence so that people keep eating sugar. And then they blame fat. You know, they say, oh, don't eat cholesterol, take cholesterol drugs. But really, it's about sugar. We've talked about this before, how sugar messes with the liver. Of course, every organ. But in messing with the liver, it messes with how we process cholesterol. So cholesterol has never been the problem. It's sugar and how cholesterol is processed in the liver, which is not done well because of the impact of sugar on the liver. A lot of people have fatty liver. I'll never forget how a cardiologist uh, wagged his finger in my face saying that diet and sugar had nothing to do 
with heart disease or any disease for that matter. Oh, Hugo, let them drink their soda pop. It's just amazing how the industry has worked against our, our better interests. How have they been able to disguise this material? Well, they have paid those people that should have been watching out, looking out for us. And so please look it up, New York Times, uh, September 12th, or go to the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine for the month of September. Dr. Rodier works out of his own integrative health clinic in Draper, Utah. Although he, of course, takes office visits, he also schedules consultations on the phone. For complete contact information and to read his blogs, newsletters, hear his podcasts, and buy his books, go to hugorodier.com. That's H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R dot C-O-M, hugorodier.com. The Spy Files is another riveting component of Kenneth Eads' Brent Marks' legal thriller series. When Michael Fine, a young journalist, asks Brent Marks to assist him in a Freedom of Information request, classified documents are accidentally released to him by the FBI. When they're not returned, there's big legal trouble afoot for him and for his attorney, who are facing criminal prosecution. The story, however, starts off with a murder. Here's an excerpt. The Spy Files by Kenneth Eade Read by Maxwell Zener. When Chan approached the lab, he could see that the lights were on. That's strange. I'm sure I turned them off. Maybe it's the janitor. He unlocked the lab door and startled the man who was sitting at his station. Chan's monitor was illuminated. What are you doing there? The man rose from his seat and looked to his right and then to his left, deciding whether to run or stand his ground. Chan approached him. I'm calling security. You shouldn't be here. Just back off, Chinaman, and I won't have to hurt you. Chan put his right hand on his stun gun, searching for the nerve. With his left hand, he picked up the phone and started to punch in the number for security with his thumb. Put it down, Chinaman. Chan looked up to see the man pointing a gun right at him. He set down the phone slowly. You're going to shoot me? Just walk away and nobody gets hurt. Just walk away. You didn't see anything. Chan took two paces back. He bent to pick up his briefcase. Leave it. Just keep moving. Chan let go of the handle of the briefcase. The man approached him slowly. Chan took another two steps back and the man took several steps forward. Chan put his hand on the door and the man gently pushed him through it. Taking his chance, Chan rotated, slammed the taser against the man's body and let it rip. The man dropped the gun and staggered back, bracing himself against a table. Chan came back into the lab and lunged for his briefcase. With a surge of energy and anger, the man tackled Chan, slamming him back against a lab table. Chan fell hard, hitting his head. Chan lay there still. The man panicked and felt his carotid artery. There was no pulse. Oh, shit. What a mess. He pulled his cell phone out of his pocket. From... The Spy Files by Kenneth Ede. Read by Maxwell Zener. Here's one of my favorite Zave and Bonnie songs, I Am French. Yo, man, check it out. Hey, look at that. Yeah, man, this dude looks weird, yeah, man. Weird. Is he from Mars or France or what? France. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This dude shopping at. You think he's cute? Mm-hmm. Sir, this is your communication from Paris. I just arrived from Paris today with no reason but cherche la femme. I got my clothes, my face, I feel so debonair. Hey, comment allez-vous, monsieur, madame? And here I am, just a stranger in the streets of LA, looking out for something to do. And I say, hey, how you doing? And I gotta show you something, cause I wanna be your favorite of you, because I'm French. Everything is possible to know Because I'm French Ça doit marcher between me and you You know I'm French Everything is possible to know You know I'm French Ça doit marcher between me and you Yeah Man, this dude is cool 
Like a child in a toy store I think, I think I want more Cause she talks about ménage à trois oh. She wants love à la carte. I'm ready to play the part Go for it, c'est la vie Pourquoi pas oh, oh. She wants to see my savoir faire Un autre pose bien au contraire I'm gonna have to sing her toujours l'amour She said Mademoiselle, so what's your name? <laughs> Baba. You've got to be my soup du jour. I want to kiss ton petit four. Ouh la la!